0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Reverb. My name is Alex Helberg, and I'm joined on the mic by my co-hosts and co-producers, Calvin Pollock and Sophie Wadzak. How are you doing, guys? Doing Doing good. good. It's good to be here. (laughs) Jinx. (laughs) Sorry, Sophie. Walked
1: all over your response there.
0: Dang
2: it. Now I can't talk. For the
0: rest of the episode, oh, that's okay. I'll I'll un I'll uh, unjinx you, but uh, but uh, the next time we see each other in person, you owe Calvin and I a Coke. That's the law.
1: Yeah, that's a okay. Coke. So no diet Coke. I want the <laughs> Mexican Coke with the real
2: <laughs> <Coke>. top <laughs> tier.
0: That's the top only shelf. way to go. Coca Cola, absolutely top shelf. Just like all of our rejoinder episodes, just like uh, we are about to do for you today. How'd you like that for a segment? I loved it. I was uh, just about to
2: say. That's a thing. Thank you.
0: Thank you very much. So today, as I said, we are going to be bringing you another Rejoinder series. That is, for those of you who have not uh, tuned in for our Rejoinder episodes before, this is where we critique articles that contain spurious assumptions about things that are in our wheelhouse. And typically, I will go ahead and read through the article. I'll maybe stop at some critical inflection points, and my co-hosts will insert some of their own opinions, and we can kind of collectively critique these articles as we go through them. This is technically, I believe, the second in our our series on critiquing and maybe providing a guiding hand to STEM approaches to humanity's problems. So if you'll recall, a couple of episodes ago, we recorded an episode on a project of an AI lab to create a robot who could debate with humans, trying to teach a computer uh, how to go through the sort of quote-unquote laws of persuasion such that they could beat a human in front of a human audience. Of course, we critique that one on its spurious assumptions about how we attribute agency to machines, whether or not a human audience will ever be able to think that a computer is a better arguer than a human. And today we are going to be dealing with another article that makes some similar kinds of spurious assumptions about the laws of persuasion and what makes a good argument and good arguers. So, what we are uh, going to be looking at today is an article that caused not a small amount of controversy on specifically Academic Twitter and Humanities Twitter, a couple of years ago. This is an article uh, that I've pulled from The Atlantic by a fairly controversial writer from that publication named Jesse Singal. So first, I guess I'll I'll ask my co-host here, Calvin, Sophie, have either of you ever heard of Jesse Singal before? And what associations do you have with this name?
2: I don't know that I have, even though it sounds familiar, but I hear a lot of names these days. So I don't know if I know who that is. But Calvin, do you?
1: Yeah, I mean, my sort of association with Jesse Singal is writing a lot of articles about trans issues and LGBTQ issues generally that take a very sort of both sidesy tone. and, And I think he has been critiqued by a lot of people for seeming weirdly fixated on those issues when they seemingly don't affect him as much as the subjects who he's writing about so i that's that's my association but i wouldn't want to you know speak for other people and their are much more robust critiques than that but yeah i'm sure i'm sure this article will have a lot to say about
0: yeah, Jesse Singal has kind of a penchant for sticking his fingers into issues that he does not know very much about, such as, as Calvin referenced, transgender issues, uh, specifically with regard to transgender children or uh, the process by which uh, children go through gender dysphoria uh, and, okay. you know, go through the process of transitioning. But of course, it doesn't end uh, just at gender politics. As we're going to see today, he's sticking his fingers into a pot uh, that is typically referred to as rhetoric and are Argumentation with a provocative title that we'll start out with called The New Science of How to Argue Constructively. The subhead here is Disagreement is Central to Our Lives Online. Aerosologists want to study it more systematically. So again, I'll ask: when you hear the word aerosologist, (laughs) what does that what does that word conjure to mind for you? What do you think an aerosologist is?
1: Like a lady who
0: inherited a lot of money and wants to <laughs>
1: argue about it. I don't know.
0: The study of uh, recipients of great fortunes. Yes. How
1: they spend <laughs> or, that money, um, how they're targeted by you know <laughs> friends and, and loved ones for
0: the money. That sounds That's much right. more interesting than I'm sure whatever the hell single is
1: about to talk to us
0: about. <laughs> yeah, I think that you are, you are correct in that assumption. So let's just go ahead and dive right in to this article about Aerosology, the new science of disagreement, this article begins. In the early days of the internet, way back in the 1990s, so ancient history we're talking at this point, (laughs) tech utopians envisioned a glittering digital future in which people from very different backgrounds could come together online and, if not reach consensus, at least learn something from one another. In the actual future we inhabit, things didn't work out this way. The internet, especially social media, looks less like a dinner party and more like a riot. People talk past one another, and the discussion spirals down accordingly. Oof, it's a pretty bleak portrait that's offered here at the very top. I don't know, does this accord with your view of the internet?
2: Well, I mean, it's not known for, you know, people always getting along. And I think, I mean, it's not, I don't know, I mean, I think... I always think it's a little weird when people start to talk about, like, the history of the Internet in, in this. But um, I, I don't know. Is it the case that people are fighting more now than they used to? I, I, I think that arguments are more visible and are more documented. But I don't buy that, like, since that, like, now that we have the Internet, people fight dirty. Like, I don't know if that really resonates with me.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think, like, there's definitely particular times that bring this kind of thing out that he's describing particular issues and so on. But I mean, I think the entire framing of this is a bit odd because even in the sub, in the subtitle and in this first line, he's framing argument as being and like erosology, the study of argument, whatever that's going to be as being particularly relevant to online discourse. Mm -hmm. Like why is, why is online discourse the primary sort of framing of this? don't we disagree about stuff in our daily lives all the time and we, we seem to do okay working through it depending on our positions and depending on the nature of the disagreement right and so actually I, I have a I have a, an inkling of why he is framing it as being about <laughs> online disagreement
0: here we go because my
1: man gets dumped on like you know three times a day that could be why. Well, precisely
2: I, I think that there's something kind of funny of not to go on and not. I mean, obviously there's more to get to this article, but first of all, was the intention of people who, like, began the internet to, like, make everybody get along? Like, that seems like kind of a rosy... I'm not sure if, if that's really why anybody... I, I don't know. That I've uh, by that that's like the intention of the internet was to like well, make people. I think
1: it was just a communication platform for the sure. military initially. Precise, <laughs> right? Exactly. Yes. So it's yes. like
2: a little bit. Uh, I don't know about that. But the idea that like well was supposed to be a place where people learn from one another, but now they're arguing. Like, isn't that how a lot of learning happens by arguing and disagreeing? So like that learning should happen in no, this. It's one it's not, way that is not about arguing. <laughs> it's not. Oh, oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. I, I disagree. I... <laughs> Oh, I'm hey, learning hey, about po- your ideas
0: here. <laughs> Podcasting is supposed to be the civil platform of the internet. This is supposed to be the place where, where yes. disagreement enters into a dialectical forum where we can Socratically reason out our ideas, go past our biases, and and go to a more truthful uh, truthful outcome. That's bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> We're actively point, uh, proving the point of this article as we as we but continue on. You know what I mean, here. right?
2: Like this idea no, that like, people are supposed to learn, not argue. Like a lot of learning happens through disagreement. So I, I think that, uh, there's all kinds of problems with this. Yeah, first absolutely. paragraph, but
0: yes. eager to see Forced. what else there is. For sure. No, I think that Sophie and Calvin, you're right to point out that there is something kind of conspicuous about framing this article in the sort of like failed project of the Internet. Right. This narrative that the Internet is this thing that had grand promise. You see this all the time in a lot of tech journalism, that it had these grand utopian ideals, but it's falling short that, you know, we are we are failing to live up to the utopian egalitarian promises of what the Internet could give us, that it could be this great leveler of all playing fields. Right. This is going to actually become very important as we continue talking about why, specifically, people might disagree with one another on certain things, on the internet or off. So we continue. Some of this has to do with, well, people from very different backgrounds coming together online. A common trigger is when specialized terms, once restricted to certain corners of academia, think neoliberal or intersectional, leak out into the broader public discourse without everyone agreeing on their precise definitions. If an academic uses the term white privilege on Twitter in an exchange with a non-academic, for example, some level of animosity might arise simply through a lack of shared understanding over what that term does mean. That white people, on average, enjoy certain benefits relative to other Americans. So that's Jesse Singal's definition of white privilege. And what it does not, that all white people are quote-unquote privileged in some absolute sense. If you Google, quote, no such thing as white privilege you'll see a lot of people responding not to what the term actually means, but to a misunderstanding of it. To take one of countless examples, the conservative commentator Bridget Gabriel once racked up 5,000 retweets by tweeting, quote, I'm an Arab-Lebanese-born American immigrant with three best-selling books and a national organization that I founded. There is no such thing as white privilege, end quote. She was met, of course, with plenty of repliers who explained angrily that she was misinterpreting the term. To the Swedish blogger John Nurst, an online flame war like this reveals a fundamental shift in how people debate public issues. Okay, so a fundamental shift in how people debate public issues from these online flame wars. NURST and a nascent movement of other commentators online believe that the dynamics of today's debates, especially the misunderstandings and bad faith arguments that lead to the online flame wars, deserve to be studied on their own terms. Quote, more and less sophisticated arguments and argumenters are mixed and with plenty of idea exchange between them, nursed explained in an email. Okay, I'm sorry. I have to read that sentence back to you because I've tried reading the sentence like three times and I have no idea how to make sense. More and less sophisticated arguments and argumenters are mixed and with plenty of idea exchange between them, nursed explained in an email. So he's just saying that like people he
1: thinks are good at arguing and people he thinks are bad at arguing are arguing with each other Mm -hmm. online. That's how I parse that.
2: That's how I parse it But like
1: what is, okay, good. Well said, sir. (laughs) I don't, I don't, I don't know what we're supposed to glean from that observation. I mean, I have a lot to say about all of this already, but I mean, basically my thing with this is like, at the very least, and I'm sure this is going to become even more apparent later, but like at the very least, he's erasing this whole framing is erasing the political correctness debates of the early '90s and late '80s. Like there was a real panic in in the mainstream liberal media that academia was politically correct and out of touch with ordinary people, and that people's free speech was being shut down, and 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 that was that was exactly what he's describing. It was like academic definitions of terms conflicting with public, what he calls misunderstandings of those right. terms.
2: But even that is like this, the way he's painting it is like in academia, everyone agrees about a term, right? and everybody in no academia knows <laughs> that the term yeah. is like right. that. It's when it leaves, when it like leaks out of academia, like it's not supposed to, like the idea that like those, right, like, it's bad. These like are now, totally now the public got a spheres. hold of it. Right. But like right. this sort of supposes or implies that like when they're like still in academia, everybody agrees about what neoliberal means. Like, I don't yeah, know like exactly how
1: I think, it works. And I think calling it a misunderstanding. Yeah. So that, right. that first of all implies that there's one understanding within right. academia, which is wrong, but it also takes away the strategic nature of a lot of these quote unquote misunderstandings, mm-hmm. the extent to which there are particular conservative propagandists who are circulating different meanings of these terms to try to deliberately muddy right. the waters not because and they like, like oh, I misunderstood. Misunderstood. academics. Like yeah. it's
2: pretty charitable to chalk that up to like, oh, they just didn't get it. Like, right. did yeah, they and not, I'm not get it? And, or, and I'm
1: sure there are people who, who really do sure. earnestly not get it, quote unquote, but they're often picking up particular ways of not getting it that have been circulated by conservative propagandists.
0: I'm thinking particularly about when we had Asao Inoue on last fall, we played a clip that he was featured uh, on Fox News where they were more or less kind of making fun of him using a, the term languaging to describe the process of using one's own language to try and like make your way in the world, right? <laughs> to use one's sort of uh, the language that you grew up with uh, to, uh, and the way that, that intersects with the other languages that you hear around you. And yeah, that struck me as a similar kind of willfulness min- Misunderstanding. that is being obfuscated here. But yeah, I think one of the things that you both are pointing out is the kind of flattening of all sorts of complexity that I see happening in a lot of these articles. And that was seen in the last article that we touched on as well. There's not only a flattening of history, as Calvin is pointing us to, where it's like, oh, this is all brand new that we're arguing about things like white privilege or uh, racial politics. This has never happened before. This is a brand new controversy that's because of the internet rather than something that has a long history that, you know, includes a lot of not just flaming rhetoric, but violence, things that were probably in historical context much worse and much more inflammatory than what we're seeing even right now. So seeing this rather as a continuation of that lineage, of that sort of historical argument is I think important, as well as what Sophie was talking about, the sort of flattening of disagreements that happen within different technical spheres, uh, such as academia. Oh, we all in academia agree on what white privilege means. That is not the case in the slightest. Anybody who's been in an academy or a university will know that. There is a pretty wide array of ideological diversity in most universities, and you know that sort of heated disagreement on these kinds of terms is the subject of a lot of academic writing in itself. So, going on from that, we have our introduction to John Nurst, uh, who is the studier of these new online flame wars that are making it more difficult to treat other people's views with charity inspired a few years ago by this rapid disruption to the way disagreement usually works. Sorry, again, just (laughs) you can't he can't stop. It's it's brand new. It's rapid. It's disruption. (laughs) Uh, Who describes himself as a, quote, 30 something sociotechnical systems engineer with math, philosophy, history, computer science, economics, law, psychology, geography and social science under a shapeless academic belt. First. So, Yeah. The first person that you would ask on the question of uh, rhetoric and humanities Mm -hmm. is someone with a background in math, philosophy, history, computer science, economics, law. Yes, literally.
2: Lucky for him to have a background in every every subject. That's very impressive. Wow.
1: I too love to play Trivial Pursuit.
0: (laughs)
2: Yes. (laughs) I also watch Jeopardy on occasion.
0: (laughs) That's beautiful. Thank you so much for that. Oh, my gosh. So this polymath, John Nurse, first laid out what he calls, quote, erosology or the study of disagreement itself. Here's how he defines it. <clears throat> quote, Erisology is the study of disagreement, specifically the study of unsuccessful disagreement. An unsuccessful disagreement is an exchange where people are no closer in understanding at the end than they were at the beginning. Meaning, the exchange has been mostly about talking past each other and/or hurling insults. A really unsuccessful one is where people actually push each other apart, and this seems disturbingly common. So, just out of curiosity, what do you th- what do you think of Nurse's definition of unsuccessful disagreement here?
2: I mean, is he ever? I just wonder about these people. Like, is it is it is it that arguing is new, or is it that the internet has made it so that like white dudes are finally being countered for the first time ever and they're like oh my god (laughs) this isn't how it's supposed to work like it's not new like the idea that like every argument before the internet resulted in one side winning and the other one graciously accepting that like i've been in arguments with people before that's not how it works and i think that like like oh it's there's this weird thing happening where people aren't agreeing like it sounds like you're new to arguing. It sounds like you just <laughs> got here. It doesn't sound like anything I have not heard about before. And I really like, I'm being a little silly, but I really think that that's an element here. Like, there are a lot of privileged people that, because of the internet, are made to face counter opinions and counter arguments that they probably, before the internet, were pretty good at dodging or just totally ignoring. And that's not as possible anymore. And I think that that has rattled to some people, but I don't to me when i read this it just seems like wow you just got here like where <laughs> where were you you know what i mean like that's my i don't know if that's charitable but that's my take
0: i think it's i think it's a realistic read of who singal is okay. like coming from his perspective for sure okay. i
1: think there's something odd too about calling this the science of disagreement that the approach is like we're starting from let's just study disagreement rather than argument generally. Right. Which I mean, of course, that's the big elephant in the room here is that like we have been studying this for thousands of years
2: (laughs) Uh, and and like
1: including, you know, and it's not like we skipped out on disagreement, you know, (laughs) like it's like we studied all of it. We studied like argument generally, which includes those arguments that are quote unquote successful. And those that are "quote unquote" unsuccessful, but why would you just pick one corner of it? I mean, it's such a, I mean, I, I see people in in academia do this too, where you just kind of very lazily come up with a new term for something and act as though you've like you've contributed just through the coining of the term, but like he's not even doing the work of like pandering to any sort of previous literature discourse about this and like coming from certain people, especially like marginalized people who have been shut out of academia, that can be an empowering move just to say like, screw all of you. I'm going to like study this in, in my own way, but it seems like a Uh very unproductive approach to like circumscribe just disagreement. And I'm going to come up with my own highly personalized definition of what disagreement means
0: and what unsuccessful means it's strange It certainly is. And I mean, this is actually, if I may get on a soapbox about what the Internet has allowed for in recent history, is the sort of infiltration of bloggers who I don't mean to say not paying their dues, but like who are not citing extant research or who just like fail to do a somewhat nuanced Google Scholar search to see what else has been written for, again, as Calvin said. In the the past 2,000 years. In the past 2,000 years, you know, from Greek and... yeah. Even just from Greek antiquity onward, you know, <laughs> like there's a there's no dearth of information and research that's been conducted, treatises that have been written on rhetoric and disagreement. One of my MUFOs on Twitter, George Hemmington, did a blog post on this article a couple of years ago talking about the sort of citation chain of John Nurst and Jesse Singall in this article. It really a lot of Nurst's citations for his development of this theory is coming from what's called the rationalist subculture. Or, what he calls the rationalist subculture. They start from websites like uh, Less Wrong, uh, these kind of like intellectual dark web corners of the internet, where they're sort of proclaiming to be like reinventing certain corners of academia. Just basically, I mean, I'm going to give a very uncharitable view here, but like from the sort of like anti woke perspective, right? Like they're giving a sort of recapitulation of topics that, again, have been studied for thousands of years, but saying that they're doing so through the heuristic of the pure scientific method uh, through pure rationality. And I think that's really going to come through a lot within this. But again, I think the internet has made it a little bit easier for these people to publish things and say, this is brand spanking new. Nobody has ever done anything like this before and rely on people not doing simple Google searches (laughs) to find out that no, in fact, this is not new at all. So, Nurst and Singal continue here. The word erisology comes from Eris, the Greek goddess of discord, who proved in antiquity that you could get people into fights by giving them ambiguous messages and letting them interpret them self-servingly and according to their own biases. Did, As did, the lore- did he just
2: say a, oh. a goddess proved something in antiquity? <laughs> yes, just, yes. Okay.
0: <laughs> he. Yeah, Hi. so Jesse, Jesse Singal uh, implicitly giving... <laughs> Voice to the old gods view of history that uh, that the Greek gods did in fact exist. They were cool and they were his friends. And they did Um, get things
2: done. Okay.
0: Yes, precisely. Right. As the lore around Eris shows, she who touched off the Trojan War, arguments are hardly a recent development. Okay, thank you for at least admitting <laughs> that. Neither is the study of argumentation itself. Hmm. <laughs>
2: oh, right. Oh, right. Yeah, rhetoric. Yeah. Right. Okay.
0: Yeah. Yep. Oh, but, but here, I definitely, I definitely want to hear your take on this next uh, couple of sentences here. Yet, when the ancient Greeks devoted thousands of pages worth of text to understanding rhetoric and dialectic, persuasion and logic to oversimplify it a bit, disagreement was a rule-bound endeavor. To persuade someone, you should follow certain rules, both with regard to how your argument is structured and phrased, or you should appeal to this sort of emotion. Not really, there's no clear antecedent for this. I just had to point that out, I'm being a grammar nerd right now. (laughs) The goal of all this effort was to make more effective writers or orators, and to gain higher insight through controlled disagreement. So,
1: okay. Yeah. I mean, you know, at the very, you know, this is like layup stuff. Like it's so so easy to, (laughs) so, I mean, like, come on, you know, the first line of Aristotle's rhetoric is rhetoric is the art of in any given situation, gleaning the available means of persuasion. Right. So in any given situation, it's situational, it's situationally contingent, which means that these aren't rules. Rules yeah. are, are more relevant to something like dialectic and something like right. logic. And that's why I've always sort of been squeamish about the more dialectic influenced approaches to rhetoric and especially like public sphere rhetoric that, you know, I think that kind of rule hammering can be very like authoritarian. Right. And and I think that like the true sort of liberatory dimension of rhetoric is the situational contingency of it that like people can come up with their own strategies in a situational manner and and figure it out on their own and and do what works best for them and and so that's the first sort of like obvious oversight here that like you're pretending to allude to thousands of pages written by the ancient Greeks and you missed like the first page by the most important (laughs) guy um well said
2: yeah Pretty important thing, because it's like this, he's like setting up as if rules of argument are like prescriptive and not descriptive, right? Like, yes, there are some things that we know about, but it's not like, people, you should find this persuasive, and you should find, like, we're not like, it's not about telling people how they should feel, it's trying to like codify and describe how certain things seem to have an effect.
1: Yeah, what has worked in the past. Right, Um, like, that's not
2: like a rule, it's not like playing Monopoly, it's like observational like it just yes. seems like a silly a very like he doesn't understand rhetoric as a discipline maybe and, Almost like and that. given
1: this i i am skeptical that he's gonna end up pushing us away from rules at all. I have a yeah. feeling it's just because going to advocate different rules that that benefit people like him. Wow. That
0: is a, a pretty, pretty intuitive there, Calvin. I know I'm pretty much uh, setting the trampoline under the basketball hoop for you guys here uh, with regard to most of this stuff, but that's just how that you can thank Jesse Singall for that. I really do think one important thing that you're both kind of hinting at here is this kind of a shrouded nudge toward rationalism, right? That, that, that these are social processes that are rule bound rule dictated that all rational people should be able to follow and that again stating the goal of all this effort referring to the theorizing of the ancient greeks which again is not a singular mass there were sophists there were dialecticians there were other kinds of rhetoricians there were all sorts of different people who were vying for like read just any socratic dialogue these are all many of them were arguments over what the ends of persuasion should be and how it should be conducted there was no there was staunch disagreement on this itself socrates himself was known for breaking many of the rules that he set up in the very dialogues that uh, plato represented him in well it's so, like he's again, talking
2: about ac- academia right like in academia yes. everybody agrees and then people don't in ancient greece everybody agreed and now we don't like Yes. It's just this, like a very poor understanding about how these things actually work.
1: Yeah. And that's where I almost like, you know, the the bleeding heart in me wants to go like, man, you know, it sounds like you had a tough time in academia. <laughs> and like, I understand it, it is tough. Yeah. Like, I'm not even trying to be condescending. Like No, for sure. It, this sounds like someone who like kind of had trouble and didn't do the reading. And, and now they're trying to sort of like take a side route around it and mm-hmm. just pretend they did it. But it's like if you had just had different mentors or different different instructors, maybe
0: we could have avoided this entire article. Oh my gosh! If only, if <laughs> only that universe was the one that we were living in. But, but you guys, then
2: we wouldn't have this episode. That's so. true.
0: That's true. This podcast might not even exist. No, I'm sorry. Oh kidding. no, the butterfly effect.
1: Uh <laughs> oh. Uh oh. No. Yeah, we'll pipe okay. in well, some before- Ashton Kutcher lines here. Yeah,
0: exactly. Post. Exactly. Today I get to meet my father. His name is Jason. It must end with me. Just by being here, you may be killing your mother. That's bullshit, you know. I'll send you a postcard when I made everything perfect again. Well, before we start treading into not our own territory as well, into uh, the the realm of theoretical physics, uh, let's continue here. In the intervening millennia, countless young people in most societies, the wealthy, educated ones, thank you for at least tipping your hat to that, have been instructed in these arts, the arts of persuasion and dialectic. Then they write arguments meant to be read by their ideological adversaries, like opinion columns or engage in speaking events like debate competitions meant to be heard and rebutted by them. Again, he's just talking about himself here. (laughs) I just have to point that out. Oh, man. The system works because, in theory at least, everyone agrees with certain rules handed down over the years in musty classrooms about what constitutes an effective argument or a broken one. Even when there isn't much convincing going on, everyone is more or less playing the same game.
1: Wrong. I don't know. Wrong. I mean, it's just like, just, just got to do the Trump wrong gif wrong. on this one. Cause it's just yeah. like, I mean, come on, man, come on, man. We, we just time traveled across millennia. We missed, you know, a lot of stuff that, that Alex and I could ramble on about. And Sophie as well, like about, you know, I don't know, like the enlightenment when rhetoric got totally marginalized yes. and the enlightenment was much more Platonist than Aristotelian, And rhetoric became just uh, kind of what he's describing, like like this more authoritarian application of rules and aesthetic appreciation of rhetorical tropes and forms rather than this situational contingency understanding that rhetoric is actually about developing innovative strategies on a case-by-case basis. But he's erasing all of that to act as though he jumped from Aristotle came up with these rules, and then we started writing opinion pieces and doing debates, applying those rules. And so that's just like a great way to erase a ton of history and and
0: make it all sound incredibly boring. It's true. Jesse Singal may very well be the Peter Ramus of the 21st century. Let me just... Yeah we'll, yeah, we'll drop a we'll drop a link to that in the uh, in the show description Super Ramus, yeah. about about ramist rhetoric. <laughs> so the welcome rise of near universal literacy and democratic values more generally. Boy, that's a big supposition, as well as the partial dissolution of an entrenched aristocratic class. What? <laughs> I have no idea what he's referring to there, has put some cracks in the system and the rise of the Internet has blown it up entirely. Wow. This wait, 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 is this oh, a yeah, quote yeah. from Nuerst? No, no, this, no, this is this is this is Singal. This is Singal's history right here. The welcome rise of near universal literacy and democratic values, more generally, as well as the partial dissolution of an entrenched aristocratic class, has put some cracks in this system. And the rise of the internet has blown it up entirely.
1: Where? I mean, yeah. so if we're saying that near universal literacy, I mean, I don't know if that's true globally. Yeah, it's not. Um, because of global inequalities yeah yeah and democratic values i mean there's been a a an
0: incredibly authoritarian strain in america for all of its history yeah. Right. And and also, yeah, that bit about the partial dissolution of an entrant, he's trying to make a materialist argument, but he's offering no justification for the material basis of it. Like well, it reminds me of Steven Pinker, actually.
1: Yes, Alex. yes, very much. Uh, where, where Steven Pinker has this very strange view of history, too, that, like, it's, a, it's an optimist's view of history yeah. that, that things have just gotten better and better and better, and... You know, fewer people are dying in wars this is the most peaceful time ever, this is the most equal time ever, and then that's been that's been really great. Really? So this is kind of that, but for argument, I guess. Exactly. But but I he seems to be saying that this is bad though. That's the weird thing. <laughs> yeah. Like that's well, the other well, odd thing about the history because it's blown it up. And so now we need aerosology
0: to to study disagreement. Well, yeah, I can't a, get a
2: read on if he likes this or not.
0: Like well, are Oh, sorry. I was only um, gonna say we're gonna find it, we're gonna find out in the next sentence here. Well, let's he find says out. go for it. He says, this has on balance been a good thing. Oh more on more balance. people than on balance, yes. More people than ever of course there's a but coming. This has <laughs> on balance been a good thing. More people than ever do have a platform from which to advocate their positions, but the shift has also brought complications. Just as a space race inevitably yields advances in aeronautics, the online argument boom promises to keep aspiring aerosologists very busy.
2: He needs to just kind of pick one like metaphor and go, it's bad writing, Like, like rules. Rules. <laughs> he's not following the rules. He's not following the rules even
0: expository writing, it's very yeah. confusing. <laughs> Even on a stylistic basis, yeah, there's a lot to criticize here. Um, yeah. But what's what that metaphor say? about space? What did you say? Uh because, because the space race inevitably yields advances in aeronautics, the online argument boom promises to keep aspiring aerosologists very busy. What is it's the confusing. online argument boom? What does he yeah. mean by that? Just because that like
1: people argue more now, or I don't think that but like yeah, that hasn't yeah. been established either. Yeah. Like what like and and the, the the metaphor of a boom is interesting too, where it's very you know econometric like Mm -hmm. this idea that there's actually a market for i mean which you know you can make a case that social media companies kind of monetize and commodify argument but is he going to talk about that no sorry (laughs) i
0: just have to give that away right out of the gate. spoiler (laughs)
1: alert nope he will not
0: The materialist analysis ends at whatever Jesse Singal can come up with in his own head to say about the way things are. Yeah, if you wanted to make that metaphor work, the space race is akin to the social media boom because it's a bunch of, well, possibly nation states, but a competition, a ruthless competition to monetize certain industries and the inputs that you put into them for the purpose of... What exactly,
1: other than just like a, yeah. to, to colonize, like, you know, a once promising space for the 1%, which this is right. exactly what's happening in space this week, actually, with that, Richard yes. Branson and Elon Musk. That That's g- right. Oh, yeah.
0: Yeah. And the, the one. Uh, yeah. The, the Amazon, the third one. You know, whatever. Whatever his name is. Um,
2: <laughs> so Jeff let's, let's Bozo, go. that's what we call Jeff. him. That's oh, what my 10 Jeff. year old calls him is Jeff Bozo.
0: <coughs> really? Wow. Yeah. That's amazing, Sophie. <laughs> Got his ass.
2: Yeah. Ooh, that's Very what we nice. call him in our household. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I'm miss, a little confused.
0: Hey,
1: Felix, miss once. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously, the boy cannot he miss.
2: can't. He can't do it. <laughs> uh he probably has some notes for this this author here I don't he's didn't he? it's like what did he say it's like it brings complications. Yes. It's a boom it brings just like complications. a space
0: race. So right. is the
2: boom the complication or
0: Yeah, it's it, I don't it's get not it. it it's not clear. The writing again very bad. It keeps it I'm keeps gonna take sort like of like my copy editor hat off because it just seems No. Like <laughs> no, I mean not it's <laughs> point, no but keep, keep it on Sophie because there, okay. there there are a lot of issues in here that I think okay. are very important to, that's another part of Singal's style mm-hmm. if I may borrow from another rhetoric term Jesse Singal trades very well in strategic ambiguity shout out to uh, Leia Checarelli, I believe who was the, the person who expounded upon this in great detail the process by which you keep things rather abstract and rather anodyne in order to let people fill in conclusions with their own biases which you know ironically is uh, something that he criticizes in here. So let's continue. Nurst, John Nurst, the aerosologist founder, hopes that scholars can learn more about how the divergence in people's fundamental beliefs and assumptions <coughs> makes them react to the world in different ways. Better understanding of this, he said, would, quote, make us more humble when facing the task of interacting with other minds in a non-straightforward way, end quote. It could also offer insights about how very specific triggers can cause a disagreement to become out of control. Nurse said that he would, quote, like to know more about how the process of interpreting ambiguous yet loaded sounding phrases works in the mind, end quote. So he's just talking about ideographs there, basically. I was was (laughs) going to say,
1: like, again, you know, we've done this work.
0: Look, it's not our job to educate you. Jesse yes. Single.
1: It's not our job <laughs> as instructors, as educators, to educate you. <laughs> Mainly because you're not in our classes. Right. Uh, and if you were, That's I think we'd have, s- we'd have yes. some issues. Uh,
0: and also because Google is free. <laughs> so. Yeah. And emotional labor is not. Precisely. As if to subvert the hyperkinetic, screamy, rage-tweet-a-minute culture of today's online discourse, Nurse rolls out his views on aerosology in the form of long, carefully constructed blog posts, borrowing liberally from and building on the ideas of other people. Wait, so, can I just say long and carefully constructed blog
1: posts? Like, as it, like, this is a great dissociation. The long and carefully constructed blog posts on the one hand, and then screamy, rage-tweet a minute on the other hand. Like, Twitter... Twitter discourse was very much contiguous for a long time with blogs. It's just that no yes. one really reads blogs anymore, except that now Substack is basically they've just reinvented Blogger. But like, there's really not this great gap between these two things that he's sort of constructing. Blogs in the early 2000s were exactly, I mean, not exactly the same, but very similar to Twitter in terms of vitriol and Flaming and raging out. I mean, just just go read Joy Reid's blog posts, (laughs) the ones that she tried to scrub from the Internet, which we won't. We don't need to get into all that. (laughs) Blogger was
0: not blogger was not
1: this like beautiful bourgeois public sphere that he wants to
0: pretend it is. Now, this is important here. The concept of decoupling is aerosology at its best. Expanding on the writing of mathematician and blogger Sarah Constantin, who was herself drawing on the work of the psychologist Keith Stanovich, Nurse describes decoupling as simply the idea of removing extraneous context from a given claim and debating that claim on its own, rather than the fog of associations, ideologies, and potentials swirling around it. So immediately there, I don't know, that for me raised a few alarm bells about this term decoupling. That you're debating a claim just on its own while removing the extraneous context. Let's maybe get a couple of examples here to talk through it. When I first heard of decoupling, I immediately thought about the nervous way in which liberals discuss intelligence research. Here we go. There is overwhelming evidence that intelligence, as social scientists define and measure it, has a strong hereditary component— According to some <laughs> I'm sorry according to some estimates genetic factors account for about half of the variation in intelligence among individuals. Oh. none of that has anything to do with race because races do not map neatly onto genetic difference But because the link between intelligence and genetics is so steeped in oppression and ugly history that is because charlatans have so eagerly cited nonsense quote research purporting to demonstrate Europeans natural superiority, discussions even of well-founded studies about intelligence often end in acrimony over their potential misuse.
2: I'm sorry, so sh- it's charlatans citing nonsense that have resulted in ugly history? We're not going to mention anything else about. Just charlatans with
0: no okay. Yeah. Yep. It's just the, it's just those. Okay. There are no institutions that reify gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Oh, <laughs> that reify categories. Okay. Precisely. Precisely. Yep. And also and also the idea that people only disagree with intelligence research being hereditary on the basis right. of race and not, for example, ableism right. <laughs> and right. other sorts of things that circumscribe the way that uh, someone can or must exist in American or other societies.
1: Well, and so he's asking us to strip away the context of how certain argumentative assumptions or claims get applied, like the actual work they do in the world, so that we can evaluate them more fairly in his view, such as the argument that genetics really does determine one's intelligence. But I'm just not going to do that, bro. Sorry. Yes. Like You can do that if you want, yeah. but I refuse because... uh <laughs> I'd rather pay incredibly close attention to how arguments get applied in the world. I think that's actually more right. important than some kind of decontextualized denotative meaning that, that doesn't actually affect people. Right. The right. way what's an argument the, affects people is argument, what matters. Right. Yes.
2: Why? What's the point of arguing if there's no context? Like right. if, it, if a tree falls in the forest, right? Like why, why would you separate it from the context in which it's unfolding? Cause that's the whole, that's it. Like, Arguments are context. Like, yes,
0: yes. precisely. And that's, I mean, yeah, not to go, uh, I'm going to get a little pomo on us here, but I mean, <laughs> let's let's question even the concept of intelligence as social scientists measure it. What are they using to measure intelligence? That in itself is a very fraught question that is yeah. not being inter- interrogated here. And it's another reason why, again, I think we need more recoupling than decoupling, <laughs> because yeah. there's often more nuance and complexity to the context that should necessarily inflect the way if we are going to be reasonable in science Out these debates, we need to consider more context rather than less. This is just making it more simple, (laughs) and it's more easy to, I guess, plug into a formula if you do it this way. Once you know a term like decoupling, you can identify instances in which a disagreement isn't really about X anymore, but about Y and Z. When some readers first raised doubts about a now discredited Rolling Stones story describing a horrific gang rape at the University of Virginia, they noted inconsistencies in the narrative. Others insisted that such commentary fit into destructive tropes about women fabricating rape claims, and therefore should be rejected on its face. The two sides weren't really talking. One was debating whether the story was a hoax, while the other was responding to the broader issue of whether rape allegations are taken seriously. Likewise, when scientists bring forth solid evidence that sexual orientation is innate or close to it, conservatives have lashed out against findings that would, quote, normalize homosexuality. But the dispute over which sexual acts, if any, society should discourage is totally separate from the question of whether sexual orientation is, in fact, inborn. Because of a failure to decouple, people respond indignantly to factual claims when they're actually upset about how these claims might be interpreted. Why would we be upset about that? Why Why possibly would we be upset about interpret- It's almost like facts require interpretation in order to communicate them in the first place. I don't know. I also just, like, is he not aware of the distinction
1: between descriptive versus normative right. like like, e- like eth- ethical questions versus yes. factual questions i mean that's all he's talking about this is not
2: yeah it's it's this, this is, is like, like groundbreaking stuff yeah like stasis theory right like some yes. people think it's a an existential question but other people are thinking it's a question of judgment like we we are aware that those disagreements and misunderstandings happen in that way Right. No,
1: and, and, and we don't actually need to decouple yeah. to to figure that out. Like you, you yeah. don't. In fact, you probably, like yeah. Alex is saying, need to recouple like you need right. to actually read more deeply into the context of what these people are saying to understand whether they're making a factual or normative claim.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. We're really getting at what is like the the sort of big problem. <laughs> within this article, right, is this this concept of, of decoupling, the idea that just taking away context to simplify an argument is the best way to create better disagreements rather than just again flatten and oversimplify an issue i think is really just i mean that's the that's the easiest way that i can come to a conclusion here but but i also, likewise, I also just want to say it, it feels authoritarian to me
1: again like mm-hmm. you want to tell people which question to argue about when yeah. and i'm just sorry you're number one that's not your place no. jesse number yeah. two you're not going to succeed. Like, this is the problem that I've always had with kind of highly rationalist approaches to argument is that it's just never going to work. Like you can try, man, but you're not going to get people to like, no, quiet down about the ethics. Let's focus on the facts. When, well, like, ethics are really what, you know, what people want to talk about sometimes. Go ahead. Sophie.
2: And the thing is that, like, okay, let's decouple. Like, as if we're all coming to arguments with just, like, just a fascination with the art of arguing and none of this matters to us. Like, it's probably a lot easier to decouple if what you're talking about doesn't affect you. Precisely. I would imagine it's much easier to decouple if you don't have any skin in the game. But, like, telling somebody who's, like, arguing about something that is, like, affecting their life or causing them to suffer or whatever it is, like, well, just decouple. How dare you tell people to do that? How dare you tell people to decouple like that? It sounds like it's only easy if it doesn't matter to you and you're just Precise. doing it for fun and you're like in debate club or whatever.
1: Right. And and of course, I'm sure Alex is thinking of this too. This calls to mind the idea of bracketing from yes. public sphere theory, yes. which, you know, I, I you know, we could we don't need to get into the nuances of, of that entire debate, but it, you know, it tends to get associated with Jürgen Habermas, th- this idea that you can bracket your individual differences when you come to an argument and just just put all that stuff aside and and participate in the argument in a purely rational way. Nancy Frazier critiqued this by saying yes. that bracketing often excludes the very issues that we should be debating because it's those differences that certain public sphere theorists want us to bracket that that we need to actually be discussing because those differences represent social problems that we need to be debating solutions to and also debating the very nature of those social problems. And so there's an entire debate, you know, within rhetoric and argument studies that that he's bracketing. And, you know, we, we've we've gone over this. There's a lot of literature on this. Yes. And yes, yeah, it's just like, do the do the reading, man.
0: Do a little bit of homework. I you yeah. you literally I know right homework on. sucks. I like. know. But, but it's ne- it's necessary sometimes. Yeah. And, so and, and, I, you and, won't
1: and this article is full of homework. You're just like doing
0: useless homework. It's like half assed homework. It's like you started you wrote your name on the top of the page and that was about it. Um,
1: blogs from a bunch of rationalist <laughs> weirdos right. instead of like Nancy Fraser and Jürgen Habermas.
0: Precisely. Yeah, you jumped right on what I was going to go to, Calvin, which was to quote from Nancy Fraser. But I think you did a great job of just summing it up right there. That idea of bracketing being kind of one of the central disagreements in public sphere theory that, again, has been disagreement has been waged upon that for decades you know for like the last you know century more or less but again i just want to return really quickly to what calvin said about this becoming a potentially authoritarian theory let's see if we can read that into the uh into the next paragraph at all Nurst believes that the world can be divided roughly into high decouplers for whom decoupling comes easy and low decouplers for whom it does not
2: (laughs) this is exactly what i was saying and he's Yes. Let me guess. He's going to say that it's like has to do with how rational the person is and not <laughs> oh and not about how much they might be invested in the argument that they're making is that Sophie, can
0: I read the next couple sentences? Yes, you can. <laughs> Nurse believes that hard science types are better at it on average, while artistic types are worse. Interesting. Interesting. Hard
1: science types.
0: Hard, hard science, science types. types. Hard right.
2: Oh, my God. And artistic, and everybody knows that you can either be a hard science type or an artistic type, and that's and easy to know. Well, hey, as, as,
1: as the great philosophers of argument, Ray's Remmerd once said, I ain't got no type.
0: <laughs> These what are the a- philosophers <laughs> of our day. <laughs> oh my god. Sophie, that was incredible. I mean, you both literally just like predicted the next this this whole paragraph. Unbelievable. Or I said yeah. not unbelievable, but like just too easy to believe. Oh
2: my and my and man. I feel like
1: I feel like it's often gets framed as if the, you know, us humanities people like we're we're kind of the ones with beef. So like this is a great example of just like stem lord, authoritarianism. Yeah. Like if you're in if you're in art, you, you probably really aren't going to be it. very good at this. Yeah. yeah. So so just pipe That's down. Ridiculous. Right.
0: yeah, or that so, like there's
2: there's one that you should try to be like. Well, maybe you're an artistic, but you should pro- try to be this way if you if you hope to succeed. Like, right
0: in persuasion okay. in in rational discourse. After all, he writes, part of being an artist is seeing connections where other people don't. So maybe it's harder for the artistic types to not see connections in some cases. Nurse might be wrong. Either way, it's the sort of claim that could be fairly easily tested if the discipline caught on. Again, this is—I just have to remind you here: this is not a discipline. This is a word that one guy invented. um, But also, how would you easily
2: test? Like, is he talking about easily testing the difference between artistic types and scientific types?
0: He's, How is yeah, that easy well, to and, test? And the high and low decouplers. The idea that it's easy to test who is good at removing extraneous context from a claim in order to debate it on its pure terms, rather than those who continue to generate a fog of ideologies and associations and that pesky context that we all hate. So another potential <laughs> avenue for erosology is to produce interventions to promote more healthy ways of arguing. Quote, If it would become a proper field, it would be interesting to see whether training people to identify common pitfalls of disagreement would make them argue better and be less responsive to bad argumentation, Nurst explained.
2: Okay, okay, (laughs) so so moving away, like, oh, the rules, oh, rhetoric's rules, that sucked, right? What if we train people to follow a new set of rules? (laughs) And then they do great. Like, what? Yeah, didn't common you,
1: pitfalls. That's never been studied before. No, like yeah. We, we logical haven't logical studied... Fallacies, fallacies are not a thing. Yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> and also, like, I got to say, there's some kind of creepy neoliberal rhetoric filtering in here when yeah. he says interventions to nudge people into. I mean, it, it makes me think of, like, tax credit incentives to, like, get people to live healthier lives and just just all of these kind of neoliberal policy quirks that have been developed since the 90s to try to get people to participate in the economy in certain kinds of ways rather than just you know giving people the things they need and and it sounds like he wants to treat argument that way which again it, it this shows like the latent authoritarianism in philosophies such as neoliberalism that purport to be very free and open and, you know, and encouraging individual diversity and variation.
0: It is, again, I think it's it's a function of just what the internet, like this article and this kind of research is quite literally a function of the neoliberal internet that we have, that this is like allowed to happen. Um, yeah. So, just continuing on here. Nursed is nothing if not prolific, and at first glance this field can appear a bit sprawling and impregnable. Nurst explains mm. in his in his blog post, "quote What is Erasology? That quote off the top of his head, he thinks this new field should draw on the insights of more than a dozen disciplines, ranging from traditional philosophy to anthropology to post structuralist theory. Again, there's no other discipline that has already drawn on all of those traditions yeah. to create a theory. Just of off the top of his head, he couldn't of. Just take off thought, uh, yeah, you know, a good like,
2: way to like. You're, you're making, it's. it feels like the readers of this are doing more reading than they did. <laughs> yeah. Like, you didn't yes. read anything before? You
0: no, no, he didn't. This? Okay. And cool. as he explained to me, the details thus far, quote, are portioned out among 70 blog posts and 170,000 words. That's almost two books worth of theorizing. But once you learn about aerosology, you see its potential applications everywhere. This is where the uh, criticism comes in that he does. You know, granted, I'll give him some credit here. He does put in some critiques of this. uh, Classic Singal style. If there's a critique... In there so that when he gets critiqued, he can go, but wait,
1: like go to paragraph 97. I critiqued
0: (laughs) it. Yeah. Yeah. When that, when then, of course, I, you know, of course, I wrote in the paragraphs after I introduced them, well, I actually disagree with these people, but (laughs) because he does do that here, Um, just to give a, a, again, a little spoiler here. When I ran the concept of erosology by a couple of political scientists who study disagreement, so again, still not rhetoricians, still not argumentation theorists, but political scientists, we're getting a little closer to the center, I got some unexpected pushback. Though Nerst has claimed that, quote, no one needs to be convinced of the needlessly adversarial quality of online discourse, the Syracuse University political scientist Emily Thorson isn't buying it. Quote, I actually do need to be convinced of this, she said in an email, or at least about the larger implication that uncivil online discourse is a problem so critical that we need to invent a new discipline to solve it. I'd argue that much of the dysfunction we see in online interactions is just a symptom of much larger and older social problems, including but not limited to racism and misogyny. Our Thank time you. would be better spent addressing those issues. End quote. Ding, ding, Absolutely. ding.
1: And but also God. and also like
0: she's <laughs> kind of making the point, I mean,
1: implicitly that like, dude, this is just your menchies. Like you're yes. upset about your yeah. menchies. Yes. It's yeah. not about anything bigger than that. Like this is not a new thing. Yeah, I like that Precisely. he said
2: unexpected pushback, and it almost seems like he just doesn't expect pushback wholesale. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. weirdly, somebody mm-hmm. pushed back on something I said. Like, mm. I, I really—I know I said this before, but I really feel like this is like a new feeling for some people that they don't like, and they like want it to be a much bigger. Calvin, as you were saying, like he wants this. Like, well, this isn't just about people not liking what I say; it's bigger than that. Like, is it bigger than that? I don't know. Like, sounds yeah, like, like when just when don't you know like it. when.
1: When Conceptual James shit on our podcast, we didn't invent a new discipline about it. No, uh, we just blocked him.
0: Yeah, you and just, we just ignored him because basically you know. he doesn't exist if you don't talk about him. Uh, we've already That's, talked more about him than I have wanted about, to. Is, muting, is okay. muting an instance of decoupling? I, <laughs> I'm decoupling myself from You're decoupling the- yourself. Uh, the context that I don't want to see. The uh, intellectual dark
2: web, yeah.
1: <laughs>
0: that's Scott right, Legg's this right.
2: concept of decoupling. After all, I've decided I love By Christ. the way, can I
1: just point <laughs> out, it's really funny to me that, they, that these types have adopted intellectual dark web voluntarily. They've chosen that, like, you know, the dark web where, like, you can get child porn. And
0: yes. Right. You can,
1: like, get someone murdered for money. Right. That's where our ideas are.
0: Yeah, no accident that, uh, yeah, there's probably, they probably get a lot of support from uh, online libertarians who have a lot to say about age of consent laws, allegedly. Um, so, <laughs> just covering myself there. Continuing on with another critique here Samara Klar, an associate political science professor at the University of Arizona and the co author of Independent Politics How American Disdain for Parties Leads to Political Inaction, points out that for all the talk of online hostility, in the real world, there's a lot less evidence that people with political disagreements are at one another's throats as frequently as a blood splattered twitter feed might indicate again you're telling you're talking about yourself here if anything <laughs> there's some evidence of the opposite a growing number of americans are sick of politically overheated disagreement and are retreating from it Clark cites research that shows people think they'll dislike engaging in political debate with those across the aisle from them but when they actually do in a real world experimental setting they often end up enjoying the experience quote the truth." is a growing percentage of Americans are more angry about politics in general than they are toward members of the other party specifically, end quote. All right, so we're finishing out here. Still, I'm on I'm on team aerosology, especially if political fatigue is what's grinding Americans down. Even before I spoke with the political scientist, Nurse contended that a better understanding of today's online argumentation would help people cope with its excesses. Quote, Most people really are tired of shouting matches and want more nuance, according to surveys, etc. He wrote me, (laughs) quote, and I hope we will develop some cultural immunity towards rage bait and hyper zealotry soon. They are quite recent phenomena at this potency, and I'm cautiously optimistic. If and when we get to that future, we might appreciate having tools on hand to make sense of what's happened and how to get away from it.
2: And that's the end. So, wait, okay, so mm, more nuance... Via decoupling claims from their context.
0: Right. Yes. Taking away, yes, more nuance via less nuance.
2: Just making sure I understood that.
0: Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Very good.
1: I hate to always bring this back to this sort of inside baseball rhetoric thing, but. He
2: loves to bring it to baseball folks, actually. He's lying. He loves
1: to bring it to baseball. But I love it. Uh, even though the Pirates are like 20 games under 500 right now. Anyways, but tools, tools to study these things. Come on. <laughs> we have tools. Yeah. Just go through our re series. Seriously.
0: Um, just listen to through, our
2: podcast.
1: Listen yeah. to our podcast or just like Wikipedia rhetoric, Wikipedia argument. Yes. Like this is not deep reading that you have to do to get a set of very useful tools to study the, th- the thing that you say you want to study. It just feels like you want to study it in a way that it will predetermine the political outcomes that you're looking for. There's a lot of politics here that's being cloaked. And that's yes. where I think, you know, I think of disciplines like critical discourse studies where scholars are pretty upfront about their political biases and, and, and will just sort of state that like they are studying political problems, studying how arguments and discourse and language affect those political problems in order to try to ameliorate them or or understand them in a way that will help us ameliorate them. Here there's no direct statement of the ideology or the politics, but there's this weird kind of rationalist, positivist set of rules that we're now supposed to all follow that I have a feeling will nudge us towards the politics that that these guys all sort of tacitly ascribe to. And and you can tell that from the examples that Singal selects of like unproductive disagreement. One was about case of false accusation of rape. The other was about how genetics relate to intelligence. The other was about like research into homosexuality. I mean, these, all, these are all sort of conservative culture war issues mm-hmm. that it seems as though single and nursed feel liberals are too radical on and, sh- and should allow the conservatives to make noxious, toxic, bigoted arguments without pushing back. And um, I sort of wish they would just say that rather than trying to erase the history of rhetoric to do so.
2: Or, yeah. or like imply somehow that it like uh, rhetoric sure yeah, but it's insufficient like it couldn't do what we did with this blog post <laughs> that we whipped up off the top of our heads like it's just it's a right. very cocky yeah. way to like we need a whole new discipline
1: uh, well and their, and their blog post is this sort of circulation network that this blog mm-hmm. post is is embedded in yes. is an example of kind of what they're they claim to be critiquing like this is a this is a silo. Right. It's not engaging with no one's really reading this other than these guys. So right. how is it not going to pick up various habits of argument that will shut it out from communicating with other subcommunities, Right. Yeah. So, I mean, that that on its own is like the biggest problem with this. No one is reading this stuff or understands what they're talking about. But yeah. Then
2: it almost seems like at the beginning he was setting it up to say like it is kind of like it's, it was kind of the way he painted like oh when argument like left academia and came to the general public like that seemed like he that was bad like it seems like like the, a lot of the problems that he's describing are a result of like oh now everybody's in on it and look what we got now like it, it doesn't strike me that he like actually wants more people to be in on the conversation yeah, how is that going to happen
1: with this stuff
2: right but if they're going to be in the conversation then they need to make sure they're doing it the right way so that they like Get it right or whatever. It just seems like it. it, it I'm confused by this. Our whole article, just because everything he's said, he's like, both said that it's good and bad that they yes. that they've happened, and I don't. I still feel like. It just seems a little self-serving. Like he just wanted some space to talk for a little while, and he did.
0: Yep. Yeah. He's taking the stance of uh, the proverbial uh, Jeepers Creepers semi-star from Mister Show, where he, he, you know, maybe this, maybe that. Don't quote me on that. Uh, my hand, you know, keep my ha- keep my name out of it. <laughs> that. Uh- <laughs> don't quote me on this don't hold me to that is there a god don't know for a fact should we live
2: a good life i guess you tell me are you the messiah
1: yes i know i but perhaps Could be.
0: but yeah i think it's also yeah like like you both are saying like this is not only masking its own ideology but it's this It's the way that this strange ecosystem, this kind of echo chamber in the sort of rationalist subculture is making its way into public discourse, which is why I find articles like this so problematic, because, again, like how does somebody like Jesse Singal find out about this? Unless, again, like he's participating in these same ecosystems, he is kind of the medium through which these ideas pass to get into, you know, what are at least by some members of the public considered genuine and uh, trustworthy outlets like the Atlantic. Romantic. but again we have to remember this has a material base as well which is why i just want to point out at the very bottom of this article there's a just a little a little blurb here that says this article is part of the speech wars which is a project supported by the reporters committee for freedom of the press the fetzer institute and drumroll please brrr, <laughs> the charles Koch foundation thank you oh, ladies and right gentlemen there. there it is Okay. okay. So, you're again, not. just kind of like, uh, you know, probably nothing to see here. Yeah, this is very unbiased journalism being published by an unbiased outlet, written by an unbiased author, just promoting uh, as rationality as it should be. Yes, precisely.
1: Absolutely. 100 percent. Hats off
2: to them. What <laughs> Indeed. Great job, team.
1: No, yeah, I think you're right, Alex, that this is this is how the kind of intellectual dark web gets made respectable, gets yes. legitimized by people like Singal and and that's another sort of contextual aspect to this that we should totally recouple. This cannot be viewed in a decontextualized, totally pure rational way because it's embedded in a network of strategic rhetoric. By conservative interests like the Koch Foundation,
0: yes, so. and and Jeffrey Goldberg in the Atlantic, more generally, right? Like right. That's a that is a conservative media ecosystem in
1: itself. Noted Iraq war hawk, yes. Someone who intentionally became an Israeli prison guard just for fun. Oh my god. So yeah, the Atlantic has a lot of reasons to publish noxious conservative stuff. So don't don't be fooled by the kind of both sides rhetoric
0: here. Indeed. Well. I think that we've cooked this goose pretty well on all sides here. So I think it's about time for us to wrap up for the day. Any final thoughts just on what do we what are we to make of the the science of disagreement? Where do we go from here with our our disagreements in this new front this brand new frontier of scorched earth politics online? Sophie, why don't you take it away first?
2: Oh boy. Well, looking forward to seeing this new burgeoning field of aerosology clearing up a lot of these questions for us obviously looking very forward to that no i think to be real disagreements get heated because the things that people talk about are serious and uh i just think that any conversation about like the science of argumentation that doesn't even acknowledge why an argument might make somebody feel heated or irrational or passionate or whatever you're going to say any not not sciency you know just doesn't uh Really merit much time or consideration, even though we just talked about this one for the past hour. Um, just <laughs> it's already off on the wrong foot, and um, I just don't have time for it. That's I don't know if that answers your question, but uh, yes, yeah, I second whoever whoever emailed him back unexpectedly pushing back. <laughs> she's she's got she's got his number. I
1: think absolutely, Calvin. How about you? I would just say that again, the field of aerosology would benefit a lot. From refocusing on wealthy ladies and how they distribute the, the financial and property inheritances that they receive and the various kind of angling by relatives, family members to get in on that, get on the, you know, in that pot of gold. I think that would be a lot more fun if aerosology was about actual heiresses
0: that's the kind of disagreement i can really get behind for exactly. for studying contextually so john Nurst, take it from us do the, better the, do better study more heiresses i also <laughs> wanted to get this in hello nursed
2: <laughs> thank you for saying that because it's been knocking around my head actually this time <laughs>
0: hello Yes. So this is Yakko, Wacko, and Dot signing off
2: here. I also know what we're going to be for Halloween now, guys. Just Absolutely. side note, I've figured that out.
0: Absolutely. Okay. Yes. Thank you. I will. Yep. yep. Ben Kalman can be Hunter. the nurse. Absolutely. We're yes. <laughs> ben. Ben must be our hello nurse. Absolutely. Since he since he's not here, that's that's what he got. To, <laughs> that's what he gets to get stuck with. Or Doctor Scratch uh, and
2: Sniff isn't that their ooh, handler? Doctor Scratch and Sniff. Yeah.
0: Yes. Yes. Yeah. He could be Doctor Scratch and. We'll sort this out later, guys. <laughs> we'll are. sort it out later. Uh, for now, that's all for us from Reverb. Thank you very much for tuning in today. And until next time, take care and we will talk to you soon. Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye.
1: Our show today was produced and edited by Calvin Pollock, Alex Helberg, and Sophie Wadzak. Reverb's co producer is Ben Williams. You can subscribe to Reverb and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Android, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Check out our website at www.reverbcast.com. You can also like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter, where our handle is at Reverbcast. That's R E V E R B underscore C A S T. Thanks for listening.